0: We have a lot of squirrels in our backyard and they're pretty cute as far as rodents go, but my sympathy for rodents kind of declined sharply when one winter morning my car wouldn't start. So, I open up the hood and what do I see under there? Little bits of straw and grass and stuff like that. Something was getting into the engine compartment, I presume because it's cold at night, and living there. I mean, maybe they were squirrels, maybe they were rats, I don't really know. But they had chewed through some of the ignition wiring. I tell you, animals, I mean, I love them, but sometimes I want to strangle them. This is Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. How do you stop a vandalizing seagull? How about a breaking and entering bear? What about a succession of invasive species? Although animals can't follow human laws... We apply them anyway in our effort to stop bad behavior. But what does our attempt to rein in animal troublemakers say about ourselves and the possibility of peaceful coexistence with our animal
0: cousins? In this episode, an extended discussion with science writer Mary Roach about the intersection of human behavior and wildlife, including some counterintuitive tips for avoiding a bear attack and why your garden may be out to get you. This episode of Big Picture Science is animals being jerks. Science writer Mary Roach spends a lot of time carefully noting, with great amusement, the curious oddities and the underappreciated aspects of how things work. Whether it's her vivid, even stomach-churning description of the Alimentary Canal in her book Gulp, or what happens to our bodies post-mortem in the book Stiff, or even the odd preparations needed for life without gravity in Packing for Mars. She follows up on the fascinating footnotes to our everyday existence that the rest of us generally skip over.
3: So when Mary Roach asks whether you've ever thought about what seagulls eat and what their stomach contents might look like, you know that even if you haven't, she has. She writes,
1: baloney, ants, strawberry shortcake, a large mackerel, a whole hot dog, intact mice, a squid, a used sanitary napkin, discarded lobster bait, Vienna sausages, an eider duckling, beetles, rotten chicken drumsticks, a rat, a paper muffin wrapper, a loaded diaper, and a plate's worth of spaghetti marinara with mussels.
0: Impressive. Now, to be clear, those are the sorts of things that have been found in seagulls, but not what was found in any individual gull. Her description of rapacious seabirds is her setup for something that happened in Rome. The scene, St. Peter's Square in Vatican City, Preparations for Easter Mass are underway for the imminent arrival of 80,000 Catholics and one Pope. But the gulls were a problem.
3: We'll tell you what happened, but seagulls aren't the only troublesome animals whose tail, whether they possess one or not, she relates in her new book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. Mary Roach has collected an assortment of investigations into the realm where wildlife and humans meet and clash, that is, where humans consider wildlife behavior everything from inconvenient to menacing, and how we, being the ingenious problem solvers that we are, pull out all the stops to thwart it. The tale of the gulls sets the tone for gauging our success.
0: So, again, it's the eve of Easter Mass and St. Peter's Square is all ready. That includes being decorated with a flurry of flowers, 6,000 daffodils in pots, roses, and other blooms, all carefully arranged. Sure, the gulls were milling about, but, you know, gulls are always milling about. And since they don't seem to eat flowers, nothing could go wrong, right?
1: However, lo and behold, when the... Florist who had spent the entire previous day setting up, said six thousand daffodils, roses, and other plants on the the steps leading up to the altar and all around the altar, uh showed up to chaos, floral chaos. A bunch of gulls, unclear how many, there's always a bunch of them hanging around St. Peter's Square because there's a lot of people and thus there's garbage and food scraps, had just come in and just wrecked just completely you know, overturned pots and roses strewn around. It looked like a diva ballerina's last performance, final performance, <laughs> just roses lying on the
3: ground. Do
1: we understand why the
3: gulls are tacking the, the flowers? Is it mischief making? Do they think that they're food? What's going on?
1: Well, that was the question. Are gulls just vandals for no real reason? There's, there's a behavior called grass pulling, which is a territorial display, which is sort of back off, this is my terrain. And that was a theory, but the roses were not planted. The roses were just in vases. So the, it made no sense. It made no sense whatsoever. Um, the, the guy that they brought in, the Vatican hired a man who had invented a laser scarecrow. This was a guy who sells all manner of bird scaring items who's in the Netherlands. I asked him, Andre, uh, what the problem could have been. What were they doing? And he, he was just very sensible. He goes, the gull likes to eat. The gull sees something new. The gull's thinking, maybe this is food. I'm going to look into it.
3: Okay, so they're not a religious gulls. This wasn't like a religious statement. <laughs>
1: no, it's nothing like that. It was. I don't have it. Yeah, I don't think it was. It was. It was hostility directed at the pope himself.
3: But the problem here is that the gulls. It was really important that the gulls not do this
2: <laughs> right before <laughs> right
3: Easter before. Mass, yes. and so. You mentioned the the laser. How did it come to a laser?
1: Well, exactly. And a lot of what people were suggesting are some of the things that are used by farmers to scare birds. Um, Loud noises, you know, like a propane cannon. But keep in mind, within a couple hundred feet, it's the Pope's bedroom. The people in in Vatican City, they are right there. They are not going to appreciate propane cannons going off all night. Well, and the laser
3: scarecrow, I believe the name is Laser Op Automatic 200
1: hmm That's the model. How does the laser scare off gulls? And such is the other mystery of this whole story is that there's different colors, there's different wavelengths, and um, different species on which these different lasers seem to work. So it's a pretty muddy field, the field of lasers as a deterrent, and how how well do they work? The one thing nobody seems to know is why do they work? There's a theory that some birds perceive the green especially in low light such as we had in the early wee hours before Easter mass the light beam is perceived as as a solid a stick and that's they think that this stick is coming at them this big green <laughs> stick this is called the stick effect.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so you got the laser op automatic 200 and the stick effect. Well, and do you run it like a laser light display? Because you have to be careful with the bird's
1: eyes. Yeah, that's right. The um, the lasers are, they're, they're aiming downward primarily so that they're not a danger to people who might be in the area. Birds, however, haven't read the press releases warning you about the danger of lasers. And uh, there, there's, um, there's a gentleman who's done some research exposing birds to the type of exposure that you would, a very fleeting exposure. And he, it's a funny thing, you know, I was tracking this study and it wasn't published yet. And he said, I can't talk to you about the results, but yes, there was something that was concerning, but until the paper's published uh, and all the way up through publication, that paper wasn't published. And of course I kept thinking that, you know that the laser people had had killed him because <laughs> so there's a lot of money if this if it worked you know if lasers are in fact safe and what this guy was finding was that it might not be,
3: and it might not be safe for the birds. the birds. Yes, he had, he had done yes. some research, some preliminary yeah. research, yes. and then that was the last you heard of that research. And perhaps it didn't get to the ears, or maybe it did to the ears of the yeah. of the la- laser folks.
1: He well, it was enough of a concern that you now the the laser people were aware of him and what he was what he was finding. And you know, he said, "Don't you know? He's this is an opportunity for us to." Look at you know how do we make them safer? Let's use a different wavelength. Let's use um, you know less powerful lasers. There just hasn't been a lot of safety attention paid to some of these lasers because we're not talking about humans. We're talking about birds, and people aren't as as concerned, frankly, with the eyesight of birds. He said somebody said to him, "Well, I've never seen a blind bird, so I don't think it's a problem." <laughs> like birds would be going around with white canes or. Well, it gives you a sense of
3: how complex these stories of trying to control wildlife can become in terms of what the stakes are and this sort of kind of this escalation and all these attempts and then how it gets more convoluted. Mary, the the subtitle of your book is When Nature Breaks the Law. And I wonder if you can give us what your organizing idea here is and um, what sort of laws are we talking about? Because we're not talking about nature's laws, right? No, no. We're doing okay with nature's laws.
1: No, we're talking about laws written for human beings, which, of course, animals can't read, have no reason to be aware of. And I'm using, you know, crimes facetiously, obviously... These are just animals doing what animals do. They're looking for food. They're looking for a place to nest. They're just doing it in or around uh, some person's property. And that's a problem and a conflict.
3: One of the exact, in fact, two of the chapters of your book are devoted to bears. And here the the stakes are, I would say, a bit higher because now there are lives in danger it might be human lives and it might be bear lives the chapters are entitled mall cops and i should say that's m-a-u-l cops and breaking and entering and eating which give you examples of the ways that bears are breaking human laws Uh, let's look at the first because you attended a course wart i don't know if that's how you pronounce it w-h-a-r-t wildlife human attack response training what was the purpose of this training
1: Well, WART, which um, by its founder's admission, a terrible acronym, um, this is the forensics of a crime scene where the crime, in quotes, uh, the perpetrator was an animal and the victim is a human. So these are wildlife professionals, people from, I mean, a lot of them were Canadian and they call them wildlife conservation officers. Here they're called fish and game officers or fish and wildlife officers, and they're they're the ones that are called in when when someone has been killed by a bear or, or a cougar, which happens very rarely. Well, they both are rare. So their their job is to figure out, first of all, what species was it? You can look at the injuries and pretty easily tell which species it was, bear, uh, mountain lion, or human. Sometimes it's uh, um, there have been cases where a, a murder by a human was mistaken for a, a cougar. There was, there was a case of that. so the, and, and first, the
3: cougars and the bears kill in different ways.
1: They kill in different ways and they have different weapons mm-hmm. and you can you can figure it out by looking at the wounds. There's sort of telltale places that they attack and the, the marks of the claws are quite different. So you'd, and
3: whether th- whether the face is still there or not.
1: Yeah, with bears because when bears fight with each other, uh, they go for the face because the face is lightly furred and you can you can inflict more pain and more damage. I haven't seen them on a real person, but they had mannequins that um, they, at this training session, they have these um, uh, soft touch mannequins. And some of the people who are familiar with these wounds, and actually they based them on actual wounds. So they would like, you know, the eye would be missing or a lot of scalpings, because what happens is that if you have a very wide jaw, and you bring that jaw down on a head, you hit bone. And so you kind of pull away the skin kind of like Imagine biting a very ripe plum. You know how the skin pulls away?
3: I will be thinking about that at three now, in the morning. Yes. I think about
1: it every time I eat a plum now. Oh, goodness. Kind of ruined plums for me. <laughs> anyway, so you, you, you figure out, okay, it looks like this was, say, a bear. And then also they're trying to find the perpetrator. To make sure they they don't want to just kill any random bear in the area they air. want to find that bear they want to make sure yes they they are looking for it's called linkage they're going to link you know by dna or whatever by the looking at the blood on the the bear and matching blood on the you know they're ma- trying to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this is the actual bear they would you know look say look for uh, look at the claws and the teeth and see if they you know is does the blood there match the blood of the victim i mean there's ways that you can you can do measurements with the, the teeth marks. Do they match the bears, the span between the canines on the bear? Sometimes the bear has been shot on the scene because it's, um, it's a threat to people who are coming onto the scene, especially if the bear has cached the victim. And this is so rare. I don't want people to be thinking this happens all the time. Um, but, you know, up in Alaska and Canada, you do get these cases a couple of year often.
3: Well, the stakes are high here because, of course, of course, we want to protect humans from bears, although maybe not every animal lover would agree with me. But if the bear is found guilty, that's it for the bear. That's it, it we, for the bear. The bear doesn't go to trial where we get to hear why the bear yes. perhaps yes. attacked this human or why the mother bear yeah. attacked this human. I mean, the, the non-human animal's rights here right. are Right. Milk. And even the
1: word attack most of the time isn't appropriate because it, it's more a defense it may be a defense, you've come too close, and then the bear has cubs. Although thats it's very rare that people have been killed by a sow bear, a female, with cubs. There's a sense people have that that happens all the time. What happens usually is the bear does a bluff charge, and that's enough to get somebody to back off. Um, far more often it has to do with food. Um, it's food in a tent, or it's food the bear has cached a carcass. I'm going to bury it with some leaves and stuff. And I'm going to come back and snack on it later. Uh, the bear may think that you're coming for the food, you know, not, not realizing that humans aren't really big on decomposing moose meat. So it's so it's almost never a case of a bear deciding, I'm going to stalk and kill mm-hmm. that human. I don't like the looks of that guy. I do, yeah. I don't like what he's wearing. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to show him who's boss.
3: You describe the difference between when a bear is about to attack and when a bear is bluffing and some of it was as to how the human responds some of it was counterintuitive.
1: Well a bluff a bluffing bear is going to it's going to be kind of loud and make itself look big and it's it's going to charge at you sort of huffing huffing and, yeah. yes clacking its jaw I mean it it's, it wants to scare you off it's going to be scary because its goal is to scare you off and it's very good at doing that. Um, A predatory bear, and it's so rare, um, that's a more quiet kind of circling around and sort of checking you out. But one thing I wanted to say is that when I was a kid, you always heard, if it's brown, lie down. If it's black, fight back. And I found out, I I was told by some of the folks at WART, (laughs) the poorly named conference, that's not good advice because some black bears are brown and some brown bears are black. Uh, so, you know, for you to be kind of like going, Hmm, is that actually, is that a, is that a brown bear or, you know, which is grizzlies or brown bears or which one? And then, and the other, yeah, the other difference between the two is the length of their claws. And I'm like, if you're close enough to be measuring the claws, it's probably not very helpful if, if the, the bear actually reaches you and it's not a bluff and they are in fact aiming to hurt you if they, and often like their, their ears will be flat, then you fight back, you Do what you hit the face, you do what you can to um, convince it that you're more of a threat than you obviously are. Again, so rare. Again, so so rare. The the disclaimer we have to give every two minutes,
3: (laughs) rare occurrence.
0: You know, Molly, what was particularly amusing about that that seagull story was the fact that even the animal behaviorists didn't seem to know why the seagulls were making such a mess. I mean, what was it that was on their little seagull bird minds?
3: <laughs> yeah, You know what it reminds me of? If you've ever seen cats just push items off the end of a table and you wonder why they're doing it, and the only reason seems to be to create mayhem... <laughs>
0: They just likely see stuff drop, I guess.
3: (laughs) The description of the the bears I just found uh, terrifying. Um, Have you ever seen a a bear in the woods? I mean, yeah, not, in the woods is not the point of that sentence, but <laughs> have you ever seen a bear?
0: I frequently have seen bears in Alaska and in California and in the, the Rockies and places. I've seen bears. Really? I mean, close I, up? Yeah, close up? No, no. The only time I can recall when anyone got very close was when I was in Yellowstone once in a car. So there was a car window between me and the bears.
3: So these other bears that you've seen in many other spots around the world? Yeah.
0: They're in the wild. Okay. But you, they're far away. I knew away. they were
3: in the wild. <laughs> but how how were, close were they? Because you just said that none oh, of them I, were I, I
0: very know. close. Are you talking about like a tiny dot on the horizon? Yes, I am not even sure it was a bear. It could have been, you know, a black leopard. Okay. No, it, it, they, they were bears. I could see they were bears, but they were, you know, 100 yards away or something like that. I mean, they weren't very close. <laughs> Next, how do you discourage a breaking and entering bear and meet a wildlife partner in crime that might be growing in your own backyard?
3: We continue our discussion with science writer Mary Roach It's animals being jerks on Big Picture Science. This is the story of the one.
0: We may be getting the sense that in the aggravating standoffs with wildlife, humans consider themselves the law enforcers and animals the lawbreakers. But maybe we need to reconsider our preconceived notions of who's invading whom.
3: It gets complicated, doesn't it? Take Mary Roach's example of bears. Of course, we want to avoid a bear attack, but as she said, Bears aren't stalking us out of malice. They're reacting to a threat to their cubs or their territory, and they are expressing it in the only way they know how.
0: Yeah, well, they're not going to take you to court, right? They just don't know about that yet, but it might be a little easier on you. I don't know.
3: (laughs) I like that they don't know about that yet. But once they learn about our legal system, watch out, everybody.
0: Yes. Mary Roach has more to say about the bear family in the chapter of her book called Breaking and Entering and Eating. She says we might consider the fact that the bears are becoming habituated to humans who have increasingly encroached into bear country. And the bears who love a good meal, I mean who doesn't love a good meal, are finding plenty of discarded culinary delights in these tourist towns.
3: I wonder if you could share with us the kind of sneaky bear behavior that you witnessed and the sort of feckless attempts by the humans,
1: even with just garbage can lids, to keep them away. Right, I spent time in Aspen, Colorado. And Aspen is a ski resort town. So it is right in prime black bear country. All the trees, you know, choke cherries and crab apples that produce all this wonderful bounty of food for bears. And we went in because we're like, we like to ski. So you you have set yourself up here with an enduring conflict. And then and because the bears are all around, the bears uh, quickly start to realize that human beings often have wonderful things to eat that are not crab apples and choke cherries, a little uh, change of diet. Yeah, a little spaghetti carbonara. A little spaghetti carbonara, (laughs) exactly. And so the alley, there's an alley that runs behind one of the streets that has many restaurants. And I went there at three in the morning with a researcher named Stuart Breck from the National Wildlife Research Center. And I thought, oh, we're not going to see a bear. And we pull up. And right there is a white plastic, gar- two plastic garbage bags ripped open, no bears around. But then he said, let's just park for a few minutes. And within five minutes, two bears lumber up and uh, go back to their feasting on these bags of food scraps. And this is, you know, sustainable sakuna Bay salmon and brata. And I mean, this is like classic, really good stuff. So you don't, you know, you can't blame the bears. Uh, but the thing is, Aspen has legislation saying you must have food scraps secured. The dumpsters have to be bear resistant. But we walked down the alley and some of the locks were broken. Some of them said they were for recycling, but there was food scraps at the bottom because people drive by and toss their trash in. There were sometimes restaurants have a big kind of size of a drinking fountain to dispose of cooking oil in the back behind the restaurant, just sort of open. And the bears sort of use it as a drinking fountain because bears that are Bears that are getting ready to hibernate, they're like, they are all about a concentrated source of calories. So big vat of cooking oil, they're like, let me at it. The researcher said you would see bear tracks in oil leading away from this vat of oil out in the alley behind the restaurants. So, um, so the trash, even though there's, there's legislation and there are punishments in the form of fines for not securing your garbage, the enforcement has not been what it should be. And also these things break down. Uh, Sometimes in bear country, the, the trucks, the trash collection companies, they don't want to rejigger the trucks to fit these, these bear-resistant containers. Because, I mean, all the things that you wouldn't really think about, you'd think, okay, all we need to do is secure our trash. And, you'd be,
3: and that you'd be highly motivated to do it because right. you want to protect the bears. Right. You want to protect your property or your food or what, whatever it is. You don't right. want to have to clean up after the bears. And it, it's sort of sounding like in some of these cases, humans can't be bothered.
1: Well, the other thing, yes, and the other thing going on in a place like Aspen, a lot of these homes are vacation rentals. So now somebody who comes in from out of town, who doesn't spend time in bear country, they may be told in the, you know, the piece of paper that's left out with, here's how to take out the garbage and here's how to do this. They might not really read it or they don't care. Um, so they're not people who are used to dealing with bears. They don't know the consequences. They don't know that these bears often end up being destroyed. So where's their motivation? To to really do it right. People forget too. Stuart Breck, the guy who I was there with, who knows all about this, who gets so frustrated when people don't do this. I talked to Stuart last week and he said, you won't believe this. My car was broken into by a bear. (laughs) I left a peach in the car. I of all people, the irony is rich. (laughs) <laughs> he left a peach in the car, yeah. and that's all it took? Oh, yeah. it's like, he, crum- like he, he was talking about... He did that... There was a study that got a lot of airplay that had to do with bears in is it either Yosemite or Yellowstone. But they were breaking into cars, particularly minivans, and they were very good at it. And 1,100 minivan break-ins by bears. He's the one who did the study. And I said, is it something about minivans? Like, the doors are easy to pop? And he said, we thought that in the beginning... But what it seems to be is that minivans hold children, lots of children, spilling things, you know, dropping stuff, crumbs in the carpet. It's called micro trash, just little bits and pieces of, you know, in the upholstery. And that's enough for the bears to smell it.
3: I wonder what conclusions you draw from the many examples that you researched about how well we're doing with this human, non-human animal coexistence project.
1: Well, it's, it's hopeful to me that there are two or three of these or organizations devoted to promoting coexistence in the form of, <clears throat> they often have to do with wolves and reintroducing wolves, um, because you have ranchers whose livestock is being preyed on by wolves, and you have conservationists and wolf lovers. And often those two never sit down at the same table. And so what they're trying to do, Stuart Breck has one of those organizations, the guy who had the peach in the car. But there's a lot of a lot of interest in rather than trying to change animal behavior, trying to work with people and get them to first of all to understand what's at stake on the other side and to think about compromise and I think that's the the path to progress and and, and so it's um, not
3: always these exotic animals. I mean, we're just talking about our animal interactions. It might be raccoons, it might right. be deer, it might be trying to keep birds out of our fields, whatever it may be. I mean, these interactions happen all the time at yeah. all different
1: scales. Yeah, the other yeah, the other thing that gives me a little bit of hope is that there are now humane wildlife control operators who have systems and methods that are much better.
3: Well, Mary, not all your rule breakers are animals. And somewhat as a surprise, um, listeners may find that you include plants, you discuss plants in your book, too. We're not going to give everything away. But um, I'm wondering how it is that plants could be rule breakers in the way that you define breaking the the
1: law. Oh, plants are murderers, murderers. But they're murderers with people, right? Like we so it's a people plant partnership. Yeah, plants, when you think about a, a plant, it can't do a bluff charge. It can't bite you. It can't defend itself in in the ways that you know mammals typically defend themselves. It has to. Well, it poisons you. Yeah. Is what it, is what it does. It poisons you. So there's a chapter that has to do with ricin and abrin, which are highly lethal phytotoxins, plant toxins. And I got interested in in this because I have on my desk upstairs until recently, these lovely little beads that are called Jumbi beads that I got in Trinidad. They're little seeds. They're black and red. And I thought they were really pretty. Well, they're the source of abrin, which is on the, the select list of toxins that the I forget what agency, but abrin is a incredibly lethal toxin. So anyway, I had these on my desk and, you know, the grandkids come over. I was like, well, that probably wasn't very smart. Um, but as it turns out, you can swallow those little beads and they stay intact all the way uh, through the digestive tract, and you basically just poop them out. So those little seeds were not a danger. But anyway, well, plants well, it's, sim- into- it's
3: similar to, to ricin. People are familiar with castor oil. They may not know that the castor bean covers up that ricin. Is that how yeah, it works? Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: The, the, well, the ricin's it, inside the, the castor the ricer, bean. The ricin, yes, is in, but if you extract the oil, there's no. It stays in the mash, the fiber of the seed. It yeah, doesn't. so no
3: one has so, to pour out their castor oil. Nobody
1: has to pour. Out, and there was a guy who who was going to commit murder. Uh, his name was Casey something, and he owed money to a drug dealer, and he had this idea that he would poison the guy with ricin. So it sounds he went like a to, good
3: plan already. He went
1: to. So he went to the drugstore, bought all this castor oil to make ricin, and. Um, because he was doing this in his apartment, his roommate was a little concerned. His roommate wasn't feeling well, went to the emergency room and said, I don't know, I think I've been poisoned by rice and my my, <laughs> my roommate is doing all this stuff. So all the like SWAT teams and, you know, the CIA, everybody comes down on this guy and basically was arrested for possession of a laxative with intent to <laughs> harm. <laughs> the roommate spilled the beans. The roommate spilled the beans. The castor beans. Yeah
3: so he was thinking he was going to try to extract ricin he was not competent his roommate did not understand how incompetent he was and they came and arrested him for attempted murder
1: yes he was he was arrested and served time he, he yes he had some incriminating material i mean there was other evidence that he was trying to um, kill people with ricin i mean it makes sense you'd think okay ricin is in the castor Bean, so you would think if you eat the bean, but people have tried to commit suicide using castor beans and those jumbi beans, which is the uh, rosary pea, is also called. Uh, and they, at the most, they'd be nauseous and have diarrhea. But they don't know. I mean, how would you know that?
3: But when ricin kills, it is an effective killer. It is a, it is a toxin. It's up there on the list. It, yes. Just remind us or just introduce us to, to ricin, what it is and, and why it is on the list of things you want to stay away from.
1: Right. Well, ricin injected is incredibly lethal. But what the other thing from that chapter, I remember talking to this plant biologist, at Davis, I was like, is, what is it about beans? Is there something about beans? And she said, Mary, I'm going to send you a list of toxic garden plants. And I was like 112 common garden plants are in the major toxicity category, as in they can kill you. And I looked at the list and I counted there were 12 of them, I think it was, that have I've planted in and around our yard over the years. Jasmine, hellebore, uh, rhododendron. But you have to know how to extract the pure element. The, the but poisoning. perhaps a
3: salad of rhododendron, jasmine, <laughs> we're not going to be eating Lantana's that anytime. Lantana yeah. one.
1: So, so yeah. ricin
3: gets all the attention. Yes. Although even something like rhododendron or some of these other yes. common... Yes. Uh, uh,
1: what was the one on Breaking really make- Bad, uh, Walter White, who was a chemist, who knows how to do it, extracts, I think it might have been Lily of the Valley. There are probably going to be people who've watched Breaking Bad who are going to tell me that I'm wrong. But, but there's, yeah, toxic plants all over our, our yards. Before we leave the subject of ricin,
3: (laughs) I loved reading the bit about, okay, so ricin is highly regulated, right? You can't get your hands on it. In this country, you can't get your hands on it. This is something you can't go to the pharmacy and sell. You have a bottle of ricin, please. But you tested the lax internet rules and you
1: tried to buy some from China. How far did you get? Because you got far. I did. How far did you get? Well, yeah, there's chemi- there are chemical supply companies, and if you go on them and you look by, there's a certain number that's assigned to ricin, or to all these chemicals, and you look it up. You don't even need the number. You just look up ricin, and that comes up. And these pop-ups will say, great prices on pure ricin. and they were Two quote, for one. Two for one. They were quoting like $100 for a kilogram of ricin, which is, you know, I mean, there are people who legitimately- Is a kilogram a lot of ricin? Yeah, that's a that's a lot of ricin. I mean, you like a speck, a speck will do. And there are there they have they have ricin in stock because people legitimately use it. Uh, people who study ways to treat people who've been you know the military has an interest in in ricin for you know counteracting cases of poisoning with ricin. Or um, and there's also there, there are various reasons why people do want to legitimately have ricin. The company that I contacted, which was in China. Initially, I got this odd kind of, I don't remember the wording, but it was kind of like, we do not condone the, the da da da, something is against the law, whatever. But then she, whoever this person was forwarded my email to this supply company, and this woman wrote, Hi, I'm a sales representative. My name is Kathy, and I'm a sales representative. I look forward to doing business with you. And I wrote back, Great. How much are you charging for ricin? And so we went back and forth a little bit, but then I, you know, I, was also emailing with this guy who has done research using ricin. Uh, Seth Pincus was his name. And he's like, I don't know how far you want to take this. Yeah, or the feds
3: will be knocking
1: on the door. Yeah, he said, you know, I I have... The FBI would come around to my office uh, every so often just to check in. So they're they're monitoring these things. That particular website, the, the feeling was that they were probably just selling some white powder that was not ricin or possibly castor mash, you know, but not purified ricin, certainly not for the price that they were quoting. So they were bluffing. So they were bluffing, exactly.
0: Interesting, Molly, about the aggressive plants. I mean, you don't think of plants normally... As being aggressive because they don't, you know, walk across the street to attack you or anything, but they are very sneaky. They, they resort to really unpleasant things like poisons and thorns and all sorts of stuff, but I guess they have to.
3: That's interesting, though, that you describe them as sneaky because they're only sneaky when they're in partnership with humans using the plant properties or the poisonous properties to usually poison another human. <laughs> it's not the plants that are sneaking into your house and dropping their poisonous seeds into your tea.
0: Well, no, not that I know about it. I mean, that, you know, maybe they're sneaky enough to do that. But on the other hand, they're also the product of, uh, you know, a half a billion years of evolution. And they're pretty good at defending themselves, because if they weren't, they wouldn't be in your backyard. I think you have some
3: grievances against plants. <laughs> I mean, have you had a bad experience with a
0: plant? Well, you know, the usual poison ivy and that sort of thing. Not, never hemlock or anything like that. <laughs>
3: okay, poison ivy,
0: fair enough. Now, it does feel like poison
3: ivy and poison oak are out to get you. So if you go for a hike, the vines do seem to, like, be creeping into the path with purpose.
0: Yeah, that's right.
3: But the other thing about these plants, like like ricin, it takes effort, some effort to get to it. I mean, you have to open up the castor bean, for one, right? and you have to process the ricin in the right way. Yeah. Well, I guess the, that would be a ricin maker.
0: Well, I've never really given a lot of thought to ricin, but I, I was intrigued by Mary's comments that she tried to order it uh, on the internet.
3: That was definitely concerning.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't clear whether she actually ever succeeded. Maybe she didn't want to tell you. No,
3: it was clear. She did not succeed. Oh. I mean, that's why we said the feds would be knocking on the door. <laughs> it wasn't clear. Let's just be, okay, let's just say it now. It is clear she wasn't successful.
0: New Zealand once had no native land predators. But now invasive species kill around 25 million native birds every year. That's a lot of birds. How efforts to curb these invasive species have escalated into an ever-larger mess. But why some New Zealanders are determined to deal with these invasive species humanely.
3: We continue talking to science writer Mary Roach. It's animals being jerks on Big Picture
1: Science. Listen to The Daily Crunch now, wherever you get
2: your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Who couldn't love New Zealand? Ever since James Cook mapped the two large islands that comprise this wonderful country, visitors have enthusiastically proclaimed its beauty. And it's just a fact. I mean, when I would go there, I would thrill at spectacular landscapes around every twist in the road. There are also unique animal species populating New Zealand. There are Your kiwis, the tuatara, which I think is a kind of reptile, and the yellow-eyed penguins. But this is a paradise in trouble. A succession of invasive species and tinkering by humans have led to seemingly an intractable problem. It's one that science author Mary Roach also explores in her book, Fuzz, When Nature Breaks the Law. We continue our conversation with her.
3: In all of these cases, there's some sense of an invasion, an invasion, and, and what are we going to do with these animals when these gulls invade, when these bears invade? But your chapter on New Zealand addresses invasive species directly. You write that New Zealand once had no native land predators, and now invasive species kill around 25 million native birds a year, which was heartbreaking to read. Mary, I wonder if you could describe how failed invasive species control in New Zealand has led to this escalating problem. And, and I'll start. First, rabbits were introduced. Yes. Then what happened?
1: Well, rabbits were introduced by, they're called Acclimatization societies, and they were when settlers came to New Zealand a couple hundred years ago. mm -hmm, Yeah, from Europe, they wanted the landscape to look familiar, and also, you know, they liked to hunt, and there were they wanted these animals that they could hunt. So, there were various reasons why they imported some of their own wildlife without thinking through the consequences in terms of, you know, fast forward to what the effect these animals will have. So rabbits were initially brought in and then the rabbits did what rabbits do. They multiplied like crazy and they were destroying agricultural lands. They were really wreaking havoc. And so one of the solutions was, let's import some weasels and stoats and ferrets to kill the rabbits. So that was done. Lots of weasels and stoats were shipped on boats to New Zealand. From where did Europe, they come from? From Europe. From Europe. And the weasels and stoats, they did kill some rabbits, but they also were like, hey, these bird eggs, check it out. These are good. And they're so and weasels and stoats are they're very effective predators. They will take on a creature much larger than themselves, and they so they killed birds and chicks and ate eggs. Also Possums were brought in to establish a fur industry. Someone brought in possums. Possums strip the trees. They eat a lot of leaves. They eat eggs. Feral cats also were used. People breeding them and releasing them to catch the rabbits, um, but in fact, they went after birds. Were all of the animals brought in to catch the rabbits? The cats, the weasels, and the stoats were all brought in for the rabbits. But then what happened was the the weasels and stoats took off, and eventually legislation was passed to... um, Because initially it was like they were protected. The stoats and weasels were actually protected because everyone thought they're going to destroy the rabbits. So they're a good thing didn't realize the effects of, that stoats and weasels would have. So then eventually, fast forward to the program Predator Free New Zealand 2050, which seeks to eradicate the stoats, the three biggest problem makers, troublemakers, the stoats, the possums, and the rats. And rats, which are coming from ships in port, as they always do.
3: Remind us, or just give us a description of a stoat, just a, a thumbnail description of a stoat.
1: Oh, it's one of those, you know, it's a long, weaselly, kind of ferrety thing. Like, yeah, you know, weasels and ferrets and stoats are all quite
3: they would recognize each other, as yeah, being and kind I of think the uh, the, uh,
1: one of them is a short-tailed weasel is a uh, is a stoat, I think, but they're sort of interchangeable. They're mm-hmm. those long, sharp-toothed, wily predators,
3: well, one of the animals that they threaten that the stoats threaten directly is the yellow-eyed penguin. And you give just a lovely description of this bird. I think you say, pink go-go boots and a red tip of the beak, and now it's vulnerable to the stoat.
1: Yeah, the stoat and feral cats as well. Uh, there's a lot of feral cats in the area because the, the cats were, I mean, there are feral cats everywhere, but New Zealand is a place where feral cats were actually taken from the cities. So like kids would go in and like kidnap house cats to let go in the farmlands to kill the rabbit. So, uh, and that's a, yeah, that's a tough one. I mean, there, but they are trapping cats as well in New Zealand.
3: Okay, but to be clear that, okay, the cats and the stoats together are threatening this, the yellow-eyed penguin and other birds as well. It's not only vulnerable to these predators, but the population is in decline. And if the decline continues, the yellow-eyed penguin will disappear in 10 or 20 years.
1: That's the belief, yeah. And there's a theory with the yellow-eyed penguin that because of rising temperatures, the fish that they prey on are going further out into deeper waters and the penguins dive deep but not that deep and so there's a theory that perhaps that shift of their prey the fish that they prey on going into much deeper waters is contributing also to their decline so it's just been a bad <laughs> it's been a bad decade for the yellow-eyed penguin and yet the the heart of the
3: New Zealanders is in the right place. And what you witnessed were symposiums devoted to eliminating invasive predators humanely. And and what does a humane invasive species control look like? Really, the question is, can it be done?
1: Well, there's certainly more humane ways to do it. Humaneness, when you're talking about killing an invasive animal or any animal or anybody, humaneness is, is the speed to unconsciousness. To a lack of awareness, on not feeling any pain or having an awareness of what's going on. Not necessarily speed to death, although that typically comes quickly as well, hopefully. But it, the, the way it's tracked, um, and I visited some of the people who do this research, who are testing better, quicker acting traps and poisons, which is a heck of a career. I mean, it's noble what they do, trying to, you know, if you are going to eliminate large numbers of creatures, if that's your goal, at least do it humanely. Anyway, they are timing the length of time to unconsciousness, lack of awareness.
3: One of the men trying to solve the stoat and the cat problem is Bruce Warburton. And he said that the stoats are pests, yes, but they're also sentient animals and they have the ability to suffer and and that is also at the crutch of your book I mean much of what you describe is the detail is incredible it's amusing some of it most of it no one has heard of but also the thread running through is how to treat animals who are sentient creatures humanely. In the end of the chapter about the invasive species problem in New Zealand, you describe being on a beach and thinking again, reflecting on the lovely yellow eyed penguin. And now you have competing desires. On one hand, you want to save it, but you have less clarity how to do it because, well, why don't you explain what you sure, were thinking?
1: Sure. Uh, the day that I spent um, behind a blind watching the yellow eyed penguins come back from a day of fishing, crossing the beach, and they're sort of plodding way that is a penguin going as fast as it can on land and you know you see you just see how vulnerable it is and how easy it would be for a stoat to grab that or a cat to grab that bird or to just the nests are right there in the vegetation there they're not very well protected or concealed and and it was just heartbreaking and then fast forward the next day it was I spent time with Bruce Warburton you know we were visiting the enclosures where they were testing trying to find a, a faster acting poison for possums and the, yeah, the to these possums i mean the possums in new zealand not that cuteness matters but they're much cuter than our possums the opossum the north american opossum is not a, not a terribly attractive animal i have to say but the possums their possums in new zealand they're so they're really adorable and you look at this little guy and you and it's like how do you i mean i get, i get it you're you're talking about losing all of the natural New Zealand wildlife, the number of, not just birds, but reptiles, the number that have gone extinct and the number that are endangered. And you can absolutely understand why people want to protect this diversity. And they don't want to live on an island that just has rats and stoats and possums. I get that. But at the same time, you look at these little buggers and you're like, I'm so sorry, you're just wrong place. I don't, you know, I'm so sorry. And it's our fault, we brought you here. And it's heartbreaking.
3: We've covered a lot in this discussion. I should say it only touches on all of the examples. I I have not given away all of the (laughs) secrets of your book, and there's so much in here. But I will say that at the end, you conclude your book by reflecting um, about a rat that had made the inside paneling of your home his home or her home. I'm wondering whether your investigation into these animal, human-animal conflicts led you to change your relationship with that rat in your attic and other pesky
1: wildlife right here in your own home. Oh, it definitely did. That rat, I was sitting on the deck and I was reading and I looked up And this little, it was clearly a rat, ran across the deck and kind of slipped under, I don't know where it went. And I was like, (laughs) a rat. I mean, you have such a visceral reaction. It wasn't a sewer rat. It was a roof rat. And they're really, they're the size of a squirrel. They're as cute as a squirrel, but they have the little naked tail. It's really the only difference. But I'm so conditioned to rat, you know, that I thought, got to get a snap trap. Got to go to the hardware store, get one of those big snap traps. You know, they act quickly. I'm sure it's, you know, it'll be humane. And then I thought, why? This rat is not in, its not doing anything. Let's just let it go. And then, of course, it got into the wall. And my husband, Ed, is like, your little friend is in the wall. It's going to eat the wiring and burn the house down. So I'm like, all right, let's try to practice exclusion. OK, give me a week. Let me try to figure out with my camera, wildlife camera, how is it getting in? Let's block the hole. Let's see if we can do that. And I i think, you know, before this book, I would have just said, OK, let my husband go set the trap and deal with it and not think about it or call the exterminator and let them do it and you don't think about it. But I think that if you think about it, there's often a solution that is kinder. Like, let's. There's lots of ways to keep rats out. First of all, don't have something to attract them. In this case, he just wanted a place to nest and have babies, which we didn't want to happen. Um, but there, there's stuff you can buy, like steel wool that you can put in that they can't gnaw through. There are ways to live peacefully together and think about that first. I guess I do that now. I think about that first. And so hopefully people will read the book and maybe they'll do that too.
3: Well, Mary Roach, what a delight it is to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on Big Picture Science.
1: Oh, thank you, Molly. It's always a pleasure. So fun. Thank you.
0: Mary Roach is a science writer and author of many books. Her most recent, the one about which she chatted with Molly, is Fuzz, when nature breaks the law. Well, Molly, I mean, we've heard a lot of very interesting stories about critters. What's your take on the big picture?
3: (laughs) Well, the big picture, you know, we hinted at it in the beginning of the show. You know, what does this question of how we try to rein in animal troublemakers say about ourselves? And then later we talked about, well, maybe we need to reconsider who the invaders are.
0: You know, when animals don't behave, When pigeons clutter up the sidewalks and and, and you land on Lord Nelson's head there in London, you know, we blame them. But, of course, from their point of view, we're just part of the landscape and potentially a dangerous part of the landscape. You know, you can't help but feel a little bit of sympathy for the animals.
3: Well, you know, we we titled the show (laughs) Animals Being Jerks. But it was a little bit of a wink there because, of course, humans are animals. But, I mean, from the pigeons' point of view, we are cluttering the sidewalks.
0: Well, at least we're <laughs> providing them with sidewalks. I mean, <laughs> And food. get some credit, yeah.
3: This show relies on the talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. Thanks to both of them. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David and to NASA and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other endeavors, investigates the types of life that might exist on other seemingly inhospitable planets. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters.
3: This episode of Big Picture Science is called Animals Beam Jerks.